Hey, this is Homer Hargrove. I'm the pastor of Grape Top Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for connecting with our family today, and I hope this message inspires you and that it makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. Hi, welcome to Grave Top Church. I'm your host. Uh, we are not going to use the mic today. <laughs> I'm your host, uh, Homer Hargrove. Um, thank you all for being a part today. I hope you all had a really great weekend. Um, we are actually uh, starting a new series today, and it is Joyful. Joyful series. And you might be thinking, wait, Grave Top Church? I mean, Grave Top Church doing a series about Joyful? And we're going to be talking all this month about what it is to be joyful as a Christian. I feel like a lot of times it's said a lot in church, um, but it's really not really unpacked or understood. Like, for example, one of the main scriptures that we're going to talk about today as a foundation is a scripture that says, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Y'all heard that before? Doesn't that sound so great? Doesn't that sound pretty? Do you know that that specifically is not an actual scripture? It's taken, it's taken from a, a scripture that sounds very similar. That's actually not what it says. Um, we're going to read into it, but even, even let's just look into that for a second. What does that even mean? The joy of the Lord will be your strength. I mean, that sounds great, like, but what? Like, how do I make the joy of the Lord my strength? How do I experience that? How do I really put that into practice? Y'all feel what I'm saying? See, that simple concept is, in a way, a lot of the aspects of joy that we see in Scripture that we like. It sounds good, but we don't really know what it means. Y'all feel that? And so today, we're going to specifically be talking about, am I worthy? Am I worthy? And I'm going to just read our foundational Scripture and we're going to see where uh, that special scripture is. But we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 8. And we're going to read a good amount of verses here. And just to give you some background, Israel, the people of God, they were exiled from their home, their promised land, for uh, I think it was 70 years. They were now, this is the moment that they were brought back into their homeland. And they were rebuilding they were rebuilding the walls rebuilding the temple nehemiah was leading them uh, at, at really just like a in a practical way ezra was the the high the priest that was leading them in a spiritual way and they were working together in order to bring thousands of people back to their home and and getting it all organized who has which home i mean it was really like uh like a not a draw of hand but like or a drawing of straws but they were having to distribute all their homelands again, finding out what, where their ancestors lived. And there's a, a whole lot of work, all while built, rebuilding the walls, trying to get protection, while enemies nearby were wanting to attack them. And so a lot of stuff is going on. And at this point, they found the, the old scriptures, the Torah. They found all of the writings uh, the, of the prophets and of Moses. And that's where we're picking up. And so it says in chapter 8, starting in verse 1, All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel to obey. So on October 8th, 
Ezra, the priest, brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. So I want to just pause for a moment, or I'm going to pause throughout these verses just because I feel like this content is important. A lot of times, what I have found in our modern culture is people have ideas of what they think God is like, of what they think church is like. And a lot of those perceptions of church have been skewed by poor leadership within our churches, right? And, and just bad stewardship. And so the reason I wanted to share this content is because I remember uh, so many times as I would invite like people to church after I gave my life to Christ, there's this idea that is like, well, church isn't even supposed to be like that. You know, church is not a building. It's like, no, it's not a building. Church is the people. But it's like, well, you don't even have to like worship God like that. You don't really have to go to a church to experience that. I want to just point out as in this context, we're seeing like the literally what we do for church. They gathered together in a public square, everyone that was old enough. They, so they had some kids church going on. I don't know, but <laughs> that everyone that was old enough gathered together to listen to the priest teaching them the scripture, reading it and teaching it. And they all sat together as, as just like an assembly and listen, just like how we do church today. And I wanted to point this out because this is a moment where, where the people were far from God. They haven't, uh, they haven't been able to read scripture in so long. And the, the very first way that they came back to God and experienced church was in the same way that we do it today. Y'all dig what I'm saying? I think it's an, an important historical piece that we should recognize. And it goes on to say, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, uh, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah. To his left stood Padiah, Mishael, Machahel. <laughs> Y'all don't even like think about whether I'm actually saying these right. <laughs> Hashem, Hashabarana, Zakat. <laughs> That's how it says it right there. <laughs> Are y'all laughing? <laughs> Zechariah, Meshulam. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. When they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. Do y'all see the similarities of how church is done? It goes on to say, Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen. Amen. As they lifted their hands, then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Echab, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Mayaseh, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah then instructed the people of the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Again, the reason I wanted to share all of this context is to show us that the way we do church is so biblical in America. There's so many, there's so many accusations against church culture. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that could be fixed. Don't get me wrong. But the simple practice 
there's so many accusations to where even just the way, simple uh, a, like routine of church, when this is exactly how it was done the very first time the people of Israel were getting back. And notice that it, it shows this emphasis of how the priest was simply explaining what the scripture meant so that people can understood it, implying that sometimes when we just read scripture, it, it's, it's normal for us to not get it the first time. That whether it's us reading it again or trying to research it or study it, or a pastor trying to explain it to us, that that is a normal part of scripture. It implies that sometimes we need it to be taught to us. Y'all feel that? It goes on to say, Then Nehemiah the governor of Ezra, the governor Ezra, the priests and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. The reason that they all started weeping and mourning is because as they were hearing the law, they were realizing how much they were not aligned to God's word. They realized all the things that they were not doing that they should have been doing. And you're talking about in the old law where there's literally specific uh, festivals that they're supposed to have, specific uh, uh, holidays that they're supposed to celebrate. They had to practice Passover. It, the, even just keeping the Sabbath. Did you know that one of the, the biggest uh, reason why they were exiled for 70 years was because they had not practiced the Sabbath, the Sabbath year that they were supposed to practice as an as a Israel? So they were exiled for that long because they had not given God the Sabbath in their land. Where on the seventh year they were not supposed to pr- uh, uh, sow and reap that they were supposed to let the earth give own its, its own produce. So you're talking about like some important things that they were not doing, even just every aspect of or idea of holiness, they were not aligned with. And so they were mourning and weeping because they were realizing how far away from God they actually were. Y'all feel that? And it goes on to say, Nehemiah continued, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before the, our Lord. Don't be dejected or sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's that verse that we talked about at the very beginning. That's where it's found. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This is all one verse. What we only see is that last, that last, not even a full sentence, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Look at all that content before that we never even knew about. It goes on to say, And the Levites, too, quieted the people, telling them, Hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they had heard God's word and understood them. This, this context, this whole story is so valuable because w- we see ourselves in this story. The moments that we were far away from God, we realized how far we were, and this, we had this change of direction to where we come back to God. And here, the, for what Nehemiah and the priests were telling them is, don't be so sad, don't be so dejected for the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And they, when they 
were brought back to God, they feasted, they, they partied. They, they had such, they were literally told to enjoy themselves. Even luxuriously, he says, eat fine foods. <laughs> like, they were, they were told to take joy in the fact simply that they were brought back to God. Let's go into our message. Our first point is don't be sad. Don't be sad. Have you ever been going, actually experiencing depression? And what, what is the, the one thing you don't want to hear people tell you? Just don't be sad. <laughs> what do you do? Well, just don't be sad. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why did I never think of that? That's a great idea. I'm so, I'm so moronic. Why didn't I never just not be sad? Our quote is, no one should ever have to feel sad, depressed, or suicidal at the thought of pleasing God. When I say don't be sad, I am specifically talking about your relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I've been, I've been a Christian since uh, late 2009. I gave my life to Christ when I was 17, and I had lived a really uh, uh, wild life before that. And I'm not just talking about like, like, oh, yeah, I like to party and drink and do drugs. Like, yeah, I did all that, but I also was a criminal. Like, I wanted my aspiration when I was a teenager is one day, just maybe, I'll be able to join the cartel. <laughs> like, like, really, that was my aspiration, my career goal. I wanted to be a criminal. I, I was good at the little crimes that I did do. And so when God saved me, it was really a big turnaround. And as I met other Christians that were in the game longer than me, what I consistently found is an ongoing discouragement that people had within their faith. A discouragement of this idea of not feeling worthy for God's love. The sadness about them of feeling like they could never really please God. Do I know what I'm talking about? Even for me, in all of my mess, in all of the, 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 the junk that I was in, never once did I have a suicidal thought before I gave my life to Christ. I, I had self-harm. I, I, I self-harm. I, I uh, self-medicated with all kinds of drugs. Broke my hands multiple times, tried to uh, outsource it on others, get into fights, all, everything you could do. But even through dark times, I never once thought of suicide. I just always thought like, well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What if, I, what if I get a QP for free? I don't know. Again, before I gave my life to Christ. Just to bring some street credibility to anyone that doesn't know, that means a quarter pound. So a quarter pound of some type of drug is what I was talking about. And, but after I gave my life to Christ, I actually went to a ministry internship, first experience of church, and it was a very intense ministry internship to the point where part of the qualifying process to be in this, this year-long internship was a boot camp. And they all gave us bandanas, separated us into teams, and told us, at any point you want to quit because this, this boot camp is too hard for you, this bandana will rep represent your relationship with Christ. And if you want to quit, you just go up to these big lit up crosses and tell Jesus you're not willing to suffer for him. 
Yeah, like talk about like let's like mess up some teenagers' minds. Like, <laughs> yeah, y'all thought y'all's Bible college was tough. <laughs> yeah, it, and so for me, I was very close to becoming officially gang affiliated. Most of my friends were gang members, and so giving me a bandana at the time, I was like, oh, I understand this. Who do I have to beat up, Jesus? <laughs> and so. That, that, that year-long internship, uh, uh, it started with more than 100 people. Uh, I, don't, I think it was uh, less than three-quarters of the people that, that ended up completing it. But now, it's been over 10 years now since I went through that. That internship has been shut down. Within that internship, there was a lot of, of good spiritual things that were taught, but there's also a heavy legalism that was implemented. This, this churchy culture that was created, this idea that every Christian was supposed to fit into this mold. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Now, that mold was so intense and so rigorous to where girls were forced to wear heels and not sneakers. I mean, talking about like, I don't think that internship would ever make it in today's culture. <laughs> It'd be exposed faster than uh, any other thing you've seen on, on uh, social media or the news of being uh, n- wrong or not woke or anything. And what's, uh, what now I have found is that there's actually a, a survivor's group of people that went through that internship. Talking about such church trauma that a survivor's group was born out of it. And I look through this group and I see what people say and they're talking about going through years of counseling, having deep suicidal thoughts, going through intense depression because they felt like they were not enough for their creator because of how intense that legalism was. And I reflected back on myself. After seeing all these people sharing, being transparent, remember our values that transparency leads to victory. I was seeing all these people being transparent. I was like, wait a minute. And I started to reflect on my walk. And I was reflecting early in my walk when I started realizing that I wasn't perfect very soon. And I, I, I started struggling with things. Started struggling with sin. I started uh, struggling with just being able to stop things. Changing my, the way that I talk. Changing the way I do things. And just really old habits die hard, right? And my imperfections became so much louder because of what I experienced in that internship to where it translated to me that I was not enough, that I was not worthy, that I could not please God. It made me very sad. It made me depressed. I remember one of the first times that I uh, fell into sin, I hated myself so much that I wanted to kill myself because I felt like I was not good enough for God. Do you see how crazy that is? But now think about all the times you've thought that about yourself. Maybe not with God, but maybe with, about being a parent, being, being a son or a daughter, that you weren't good enough that you might as well kill yourself. Do you see how deep that sadness goes? And especially when it comes to the idea of pleasing God. In this moment in the scripture, all the people were mourning, just like we have mourned for our past, for our mistakes. 
And the priests said, do not be sad. Do not be dejected. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What it's saying is, God is so madly in love with you that this step you make towards him brings him an abundance of joy. And so let that be your motivation. Let it strengthen you to not focus on your mistakes or your imperfections, but to know that God is so joyful about you being with him that none of the other stuff matters. Let that strengthen you. It took me a long time to realize that. And the more Christians that I would meet and see their, their walk with God, the, this, that same story would come out feeling like, I am not enough for God. I am not worthy of God's love. I might as well leave the church. I might as well leave God altogether, put my faith down because I'm not good enough. No one should ever have to feel that sad, that depressed, that suicidal at the thought of pleasing God. That is not the God that we read about in Scripture. In fact, when we read Scripture, it seems like Jesus is more pleased with the people that made mistakes. Do you all remember the, the, the comparison he made with the tax collector and the Pharisee that were praying in the temple? And the Pharisee was saying, God, I thank you that I'm so great that I fast twice a week, that I tithe even the smallest amount. And I thank you, praise God, that I'm not like this sinner over here. And that sinner he was talking about wouldn't even lift his head to heaven and said, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. I'm a person of mistakes. And Jesus said that he was more justified than the Pharisee, than the religious person that thought so highly of himself. Do you see how God consistently tries to wrap his arms around us? The process of turning to God is something that should bring you joy because it brings all of heaven joy. Yet in the moments that we struggle in that process because of our humanity, again, our humanity, what do you learn as a kid? Nobody's perfect. Your parents tell you that. (laughs) Because when they make mistakes and you're like, hey, you weren't supposed to speed that red light. Nobody's perfect, honey. (laughs) Oh, you learn it at such a young age. This food tastes weird. Nobody's perfect, dear. Now eat it. (laughs) Are you going to get a (laughs) pow-pow? You learn so early on, nobody's perfect. But as we get older, why do we have this standard of perfection on ourselves? We are human. We have the humanity. And many have believed that they are no longer worthy to have this relationship with God. We are called to pursue holiness, yes. But that holiness is not what qualifies us in our relationship with God. That pursuit of holiness is more so a demonstration of a changed work inside of our hearts. That's what pursuing holiness is. An outward expression of something that has happened inside of our hearts. And just as no one could ever earn their way to heaven, the Bible says man's greatest holiness is like filthy rags to him. It's not a a slight to us to make us feel bad. It's to show us of how we truly can't earn it. And that that is why we need Jesus so much. So in the same way that we cannot earn our way to heaven, nor can anyone earn God's heart, it is already freely given unconditionally. An unconditional love. It says that he has an unconditional love. 
I don't even know if it's possible for us to experience to us to be able to exude unconditional love to the extent that God has unconditional love to us. The closest I can think of is to our children. I, I would even want to say to my wife, but at the end of the day, if she cheated on me, that love would be hard to find. If I cheated on her, man, that love would be hard to find. We don't got to worry about that, though, because I already got the best there is. As a side note, just to be funny, let's lighten the mood. We were talking about this the other day and yesterday. And, you know, we joke around and my wife was saying, yeah, well, if, what if some young hussy comes over? Would you want to? <laughs> is that how kids talk nowadays? <laughs> Makes her sound way older than she is. Would you, she'll say things like, would you want to trade me in for a newer model? And I was like, honey, you don't understand. I got the best thing here. And she's like, shut up. But what that really means is like, say more. <laughs> I said, look, let me break it down for you. I have a PS5, right? I, just so anyone doesn't know. I have a PS5, and I did not buy it from a scalper. I earned it, <laughs> okay? I did the work. And so I got this PS5. And so my wife, she hates it. And she knows that I... I have like the best thing in the world, right? And I had to explain it to her like this. I said, now look, Lauren, you got to understand it's like this. You're the PS5. You're the best there is out there. And anyone that comes to the door, anyone that would try to message me, anything like that, they're a PS4. (laughs) Even if they were a PS4 Pro, I have a PS5. Why would I want to get a PS4 Pro? And even at that, if some possible way there was another PS5 that were to walk by or even come up to me, I already have a PS5. I don't need two. (laughs) One is enough. It pleases me to the fullest extent. (laughs) So that's just extra credit stuff. (laughs) If you ever need to understand, there you go. (laughs) So going back to our message I want to share this scripture in Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The scripture is, is just really singing and saying that God, you fill me with joy. You fill me with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And it's all talking about this relationship with God. Now say this was David that wrote this. David was a murderer, and he knew it. He felt horrible about it. He's made a lot of mistakes. And he's talking about God's relationship with him being filled with joy. He, now, he repented of his you know, mistakes, his murder and stuff. He didn't keep doing that. But it's, he's talking about this relationship with God being full with joy. He's not dwelling on his past or his mistakes. He recognized that God wasn't wasn't holding it against him. He was able to be forgiven, accept that, and move on. Y'all feel that? And so, now that we all know this, don't believe the big lie that you are the only one that's not perfect. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. It's okay to feel remorse for our mistakes, but God is not calling you to punish yourself. Jesus already took all of our payment for sin on the cross. It says that the wrath of God rested on his shoulders. The wrath that we're imagining that God has with us was actually already 
exuded over Jesus. He took on the wrath of God on his shoulders on the cross. So we don't have to take it up again for ourselves. We don't have to pay for our fine twice. You ever get a ticket for speeding and go back to the courthouse to pay it again? Of course not. You grudgingly gave them that money in the first place. It's this point here is saying in the same way we shouldn't be taking up the wrath of God for ourselves to pay when Jesus already paid for it. Allow your salvation and walk with God to be free from your insecurities. We all got insecurities. Don't let those insecurities taint or stain this relationship with God. You are allowed to feel joyful about what you have with God. Y'all dig that? Now, let's go to our next point. Have a party. Have a party. Every step closer to God should be celebrated. Notice that in this, this foundational scripture we read, they're literally saying, go celebrate. Have a party. Invite some friends. Anyone that doesn't have their own food, invite them to your house. Have a big party because we are all closer to God. Every step to, closer to God should be celebrated. Repentance simply means to change direction. Our church culture, we, we feel like it's this ugly word, this, this evil word. I remember when we first did our free hugs event downtown at the Alamo, we chose right in front of the Alamo because while we were driving, looking for a spot to simply give free hugs to people, sign, a cardboard sign that said free hugs, and we gave out little Bibles to everyone that came up. We picked that spot because there was a group of Christians that had signs that said hellfire, and they were yelling at everybody in a megaphone saying they were going to hell. They needed to repent. And I'm not saying, like, y'all need to repent, y'all going to hell. Y'all need to repent! You're going to hell! Like, real ugly, like, real, like, passionate, you're going to repent. I'm God's hitman, and I'm going to take you out. Like, they were ready to just yell, repent to everyone. It makes us think that's a nasty word. It, they might as well have been yelling, y'all need to change directions! Turn some things around in your life! See, that sounds a little bit more subtle, right? A little nicer than this word that's not even English, right? Repent means to change direction. One direction takes us farther from God, while another takes us closer. Isn't that the simplest thing of life? One path is taking us closer to God, and one path is taking us farther. So when we repent, we're simply changing directions. And every time that you take a step closer to God, which is repentance, you are closer to his love. You are closer to his calling over your life. You are closer to making a difference in the world. You're closer to showing his love to others. You're closer to experiencing his glory. You are in a broken world. I know that that might come as a shock to you, but you're in a broken world. Just look at politics. And it's full of pain, evil, and destruction. This is not a secret. The Bible tells us that this world is evil. That this world is full of pain and death and suffering. It's a broken world because of the fall of man with sin entering into the world. You're in this ridiculously horrible place, yet you choose to worship God, the God you cannot even see. This simple act of faith inspires the angels. The Bible says that your faith inspires angels because they live in heaven the perfect place that we dream of one day being and they worship God. We live in this, this rotten place and we choose to worship God. Do you see the difference? 
It's as simple as what a lot of Christians experience when they go on a mission trip for the first time. They go to a third world country. They see how the living conditions are with so much lack. And they realize, man, I have so much to be grateful for. And they come back and like, I'm way more grateful for my life before. That's the angels coming to earth. They're like, dang, this place stinks. <laughs> I can't believe this place. They go back to heaven like, God, you are good, okay? I'm, I don't know what Lucifer was thinking. <laughs> they, they see how broken our world is, and they're amazed that we still choose to worship God. So understanding that, this faith that is so is literally inspirational to eternal beings it helps you to understand why angels celebrate our progress it says in luke chapter 15 oh wrong verse sorry i'm going to just read it to you it says in luke chapter 15 verse 7 i tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance this is Jesus talking. He's talking about overwhelming joy in heaven for one sinner brought to repentance. One sinner that's brought closer to God. Do you not see how you are allowed to celebrate your progress? You are allowed to celebrate your progress. You should celebrate your progress. God is happy with you drawing near to him. The scriptures tell us over and over and over that he's happy with you drawing near to him. And it doesn't always matter about where you want to be. It's more so about how far you've come. It's not about where you want to be. It's about how far you've come. When I look at my, my predicament that I explained a minute ago about how I would feel so unworthy, this, this overwhelming discouragement because I was not good enough in my eyes, I felt like the Holy Spirit would have to remind me of how far I came. I was like, well, I may not be perfect, but I'm not doing cocaine anymore. That's something to celebrate, right? <laughs> uh, I may have wanted to punch that worship leader in the face, but back in the day, I would have done a lot more than punch him in the face. I've come a long way. See, it's moments where we realize we've actually made so much more progress than our, then our common moment thinking leads us to believe. So have a party. Celebrate. And, and it makes it so much more meaningful when you're able to celebrate with fellow Christians who recognize that they've made progress. They're not perfect, but they're on a journey too. It makes it so much more fun to celebrate with people and community. And what that requires is a level of trust and transparency. How could we ever know about our progress if we keep pretending that we're all perfect? Y'all feel that? Now let's go to our last point, which is walk in peace. Walk in peace. Take peace knowing that God is joyful about your relationship with him. You know what's funny about this message is these quotes, when I read them, it seems almost obvious. Like, well, yeah, of course. But we, do you recognize how we have to be reminded these things in specific moments? This right here, take peace knowing that God is joyful about your relationship with him. Think about the moments where you didn't believe that. Where you thought that God was mad at you. You thought that God wanted to slam dunk you to hell. That he didn't want to have anything to do with you. 
that you thought you were just this like this stench to him that he didn't want to deal with anymore. It's not true. It's in this moment that you need to remind yourself that God is joyful about your relationship with him. Anxiety plagues our generation. Anxiety plagues our generation. But our relationship with God should be our one escape from that. Our relationship with God should be a refuge from that anxiety. Yet instead, whether from legalism, insecurities, a bad experience, unsolicited comments, or even a wrong interpretation, anxiety is staining our simple walk with God. Constantly anxious and wondering if we're even saved as Christians. Think about that for a moment. The Bible says, when you call on the name of the Lord, surely you shall be saved. All who call on Jesus' name will be saved. We call ourselves Christians. You believe in Jesus. And you question your own salvation because you think that God is not pleased with you. Y'all dig what I'm saying? Yes. Constantly anxious. We have lost the very peace that Jesus has promised us. Do you know right before Jesus was crucified, he promised all of the disciples, what I leave you, I leave you peace. And no one can take this peace away from you. He told them that right before going to the cross. Man, all the anxiety <laughs> those disciples were going through, thinking that he was the son of God, and now they're about to witness him being crucified. They're like, what is going on? <laughs> We followed this guy for three years. What's happening? And now, fast forward, he said that to them, knowing that every single one of them, except for John, was going to be uh, martyred for their faith. Every single one of the 12 disciples, besides Judas, I mean, he, he killed himself, but every single one of the disciples, and besides John, were martyred for their faith. John was exiled and left for dead on Patmos, which is where he wrote the book of Revelation. But every one of them died for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus promised them peace. He said, the one thing you can hold on to this world is this relationship with me. This world will destroy you. It will chew you up and spit you out. It's going to be a horrible and painful experience as you live in this world, especially as a Christian. But the one thing, the one thread that you can hold on to that will never break is my relationship with you. And look how that doubt, the enemy always tries to cause doubt into what God has said. Doubt has caused us to be so anxious so worried about the one thing that Jesus promised us. So we should take peace because knowledge is power and knowing scripture gives you the power to cut down these lies of this world, these lies of the devil. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior, and he will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Do you see how madly in love God is with you? 
And that's the Old Testament. There's some churches that don't even read the Old Testament. They think it's too mean. And it's saying how God loves you this much. Our relationship with God is the strongest source of joy and peace in our lives. When you realize and understand that this unmatching power of God's love, it changes you forever. And it's easy for our memories to fade. And from time to time, we need to be reminded just how simple and accessible and great this love really is. With that being said, I want us to all close our eyes and bow our heads. Am I worthy? If you're here right now and you've been believing the lie that you are not worthy of God's love, I want you to just lay that at Jesus' feet right now. You lay it at his feet because it is a lie. It's not true. And God wanted you to hear this message today so that you could be joyful about your relationship with God. That you could walk with your faith, with a smile on your face, rather than feeling dejected about feeling not good enough. God is crazy about you. He loves you. And if you're here right now and you need to just throw off those lies and receive God's peace in your life again, allow yourself to be joyful again. With every head bowed and eye closed, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. I see your hands. God, right now I pray for your peace over their shoulders. I rebuke spirit of anxiety. I rebuke every doubt. I rebuke every seed that would try to grow into this fear. I rebuke these things in the name of Jesus. And I pray for your peace to shower over them right now. From head across their shoulders down to their toes. That they would feel the presence of God in this moment. That they would feel assured by the Holy Spirit that they are loved and cherished by their creator. Jesus Show them your eyes. Because your eyes are full of passion. They're full of fire. And you have a deep love for your people. So I pray that you refresh us today in the name of Jesus. Now with every head still bowed and eye closed, if you're here and maybe you need to make a decision for the first time to simply get close to God. Maybe you've never made a real decision moment to put your trust in Jesus. I believe that we need decision moments like that in our life. It helps us to really make a, a, a pivotal point of changing directions. And if you're here and you need to make that change direction moment in your life and trust in Jesus and get closer to God, whether it's for the first time or whether you feel like you've been away for a long time and you need to come back to him, with every eye closed and head bowed, I want you to raise your hand. I see your hands. So right there to yourself, I want you to just start talking to Jesus. The Bible says in the book of Romans, that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he says he is, surely you shall be saved. Simply is saying, acknowledge that Jesus really died on the cross and rose from the dead. What that's saying is, I acknowledge his lordship. I acknowledge the reality of him being a savior. And I want that for me. And the Bible is just saying, if you're just genuine about that, Surely you shall be saved. That's how you start this relationship with him. 
You don't need me to lead you through it. You can do it yourself. Just talk to God. He hears you. He knows what you're trying to say. You can just talk to him. Lord, I pray that you finish what you started in these people's lives and that as people are trying to draw near to you, you draw near to them. Open their eyes to see where you are in their life. I believe that you are much closer than they realize. So I pray for you to do a unifying work in their heart with yours. I pray your peace over them. And God, I pray your joy over them. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. With that being said, we're going to, in the same kind of attitude, we're going to enter into a time of worship. Before we do, um, we're going to sign off online. Thank you guys for being a part. We love y'all so much. Have a good life. I hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did, there's a couple things that you could do to connect. First is to subscribe to our show so that the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And second is if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description or visit our website, gravetop.com, and you can give now. I'll see you next time on the Gravetop Church Podcast.